Bandwidth for the Weird Things Podcast provided by Wired Tree. For sites of any size and world-class customer service, head on over to wiredtree.com. Hello and welcome to the Weird Things Podcast. I'm Andrew Mean, joined by Brian Brushwood. Yo! And Mr. Justin Robert Young. Hello! Gentlemen, there has been a project going on for several years called Breakthrough Listen. And the goal of this, it has been to, uh, it's basically, they've involved with the SETI research, which is trying to search the heavens, search the skies for signs of intelligent life. And... They've had a survey now of 60 million stars, 60 million stars they've been able to listen to for some various kind of wavelengths to figure out, is there anything out there? And we can now tell you, <laughs> we haven't heard anything. <laughs> oh, man. That's, that's, always, that's always the disappointing part. But, but, but I am fascinated to know... Um, is is there a justification and 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 uh, 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 if none of us know that's fine but uh, I, what wavelengths do you decide to listen to and why probably the easiest ones to listen to <laughs> yeah. because you can let's start there yeah. yeah so i mean that's a great question i, I think they, they pick up the bands at which they think that they, they go for them and they go from 0.7 and 93 gigahertz um, and limited, the, this one was limited to the results between one and eight gigahertz. Wow. Basically they would listen for like seven hours at a time. And then they used a couple telescopes. Green Bay would, Green Bay telescope listen to 11 hours. And, but they were looking for repeating things. They were looking for people intentionally trying to contact us. Yeah. Not trying to pick up like, is that just broadcast and anything else? Well, so, it, so that would, that would be like. You know what we would think of like as SOS or repeating signals that would be like like I'm looking for people I'm looking for people right. I'm looking mm -hmm. for people as as Aimed opposed at us yeah uh, as opposed to like a, like a the plot of the movie Contact where or or a common trope is uh, uh we've been broadcasting our signals everywhere and somebody heard them and learned our language and now they're invading us or whatever um uh, so I I guess it really does because. Uh, for example, here on Earth, we only had a window, and tell me if this is right, uh, Andrew, uh, of maybe 150 to 200 years that we broadcast anything analog that was easy to decipher, and now all of a sudden all of our digital, all, all of our signals are encoded and digital, and it's like, it's it's going to be a lot harder for somebody to just randomly see our our chatter internally? I mean... We still have a lot of analog stuff out there, radio, a lot of other countries still do that. But as far as like, uh, you know, but all of our stuff is sort of aimed at Earth. We don't overpower stuff. Um, but yeah, like if you were trying to pick up errant broadcasts or stuff like this, you know, the idea that, you know, the, the things that would be discernible, you know, uh, that haven't been digitized has decreased. And so like what, what we, you know, you would, you'd be able to figure out like, well, this seems like a noisy planet compared to what it should be. So that's part of it. But if it's around a star, hard to know, but also like the Mount is, you know, we're, we're here only capable of like these telescopes are only capable of looking at things that are aimed right, like at us in pretty high power. Uh, which, which in theory, if we're looking for an advanced civilization and they had a constraint free economy, 
and they identified us as a likely candidate, theoretically, they would have the extra resources to just say, yeah, I don't know, take 12 satellites and just have it pulse this rhythmic thing and just see if anything happens. Yeah, and we're, you know, the, that would be, I mean, exactly. And I think the, the thing that we kind of get tripped up on is like, we go like, well, advance, like we, we're right now, we're like, like, no, let's not tell everybody we're here, you know, because like, we're like, let's not tell everybody here. And then we're kind of like, well, we're not hearing from them. Like, maybe just because they're more advanced than us doesn't mean they're not paranoid, too, that, you know, like, yeah, you know, you know, like they're, you know, a thousand years from now, you'd still be worried about like somebody who's 10,000 more years advanced than you. Yeah. And, and, and it's been a minute since we talked about it on the show, but I really loved that, that very real realization of it's like, let's take all of the interactions of one culture in humanity, finding another culture of humanity, one that's more advanced, one that's more primitive. How did it ever work out for the more primitive? Like a hundred percent of the time. When did the primitive ones come out up, up, up top? Uh, you know, we still carry some Neanderthal DNA. <laughs> we I mean, yeah, I, I think that 30%. there's like, there, there, it's probably more complicated than just like, you know, big bank tank, little bank. Although like ultimately that's where we, we wind up understanding that there is going to be a level of hegemony when it comes to, to culture. Uh, uh, but certainly if a, a more advanced culture meets a less civilized culture, either they, the, 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 the win for the less civilized culture is staying apart. There's no world in which they combine, in which the, 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 the larger culture and more advanced one is not dominant at some point. That's interesting. Um, I suppose maybe the best case scenario involves nobody approaching anybody but maybe kind of a Encyclopedia Galactica being slowly handed out star to star over hundreds of thousands of years, or you know, I. But let's let's well, let's revisit the whole. I mean, we obviously can think of the really bad examples, and it seems to be felt history of a higher level culture. But you know, you had uh, you take when the Roman Empire came to you. Was it really always bad? <laughs> you know, was it because they they built an I, empire? If, if they if, had to get a bunch of people. Uh, well, I, I was about to say, if you're a small village that's constantly being savaged by barbarians, then uh, you're probably like, oh, good, thank you, chariots. Yeah, they're like, we I like don't know, man. I, I took a look at the brochure. It's a pretty good idea to get in as a franchisee to this Roman Empire thing. <laughs> like, it's 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 a, it's a pretty sweet deal. Yeah, it's like uh, I would say the devastation wrought upon brought upon the Americas was really, really bad. At the time, though, some of the local tribes that teamed up with the conquistadors were like, no, we really hate the Aztecs. We really hate them. Like yeah. we need, you know, and uh, it didn't work out well in the long run. Just just to let you know. Um, but a, a, yeah. a, a quick side jag on the Aztecs. Um, and you you probably and this is me just calling my friend Andrew like, yo, man, somebody said something and I didn't really think about it. Um, uh, there was a heavy incentive for the conquistadors to overstate just how savage the Aztecs were. And I had never paused to consider that until I read those words, I believe like a few months ago, <laughs> like I just assumed that, that yeah. everything pop culture tells us about the Aztecs, that they would sacrifice children to make sure the sun rose every day was true. But then I'm like, wait a minute. Yeah, no, the conquistadors, the only reporters about the, the ruins of the Aztecs probably had a really good reason to overstate their savage. Like, yeah, yeah, these guys, well, these guys sucked. Well, 
that was there was actually a period of anthropology kind of in the 50s and 60s went back and said just that thing like maybe how do why do we trust their narrative which is a very good point to take like why do we trust their narrative because they're writing these things then the historical record started showing like they just have i had a story that i didn't do here which was like they talked about the Cadiz stores talked about finding this uh in the the the, the mexican capital originally like this big Bon, like these big like walls of bones were bigger than they could could imagine which was like you know like murdered people and all them stacked whatever in this big description i forgot what it was called and like that sounds a little anecdotal you know like really like are you guys maybe trying to make the case and then somebody jackhammers in digs down and finds holy cow look at that giant thing of bones and stuff so uh we've been finding uh there you know and and, and the more we dig the more we find oh well, that's not and again, not that the things we were doing back in Europe were all that great, or the things done, the the the, the genocide or the horrific things done to people in the Americas by Europeans. Let's not, you know, we're all we're all, we're all like, yeah, bad. But like they've, you know, you find there that like part of the reason they were able to, you know, they were able to conquer the Canisters were able to do, do so go far. So many tribes joined with them because they were so sick of what was going on because of just how crazy uh vicious and violent the cultures had become some of them i mean you know all politics are local right yeah (laughs) like at at, at the end of the day uh uh you know especially now i think it's it's fascinating as as we have more access to history than we've ever had in in any kind of of human civilization that we we always kind of process it both through our modern lens and we have more raw material to process through and and uh, a lot of times we kind of lose the forest for the trees we, we 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 lose the little bit of nuance that kind of makes everything a little bit uh you know make a make more sense uh so so i got a question andrew let's say that we had found something a beacon from one of these stars and uh i i, I think it's fair to say um in science fiction, we have all spent a lot of time thinking about physically one one species going to the other or, or whatever. But let's say let's say that's off the table because practically speaking, it is. Um, I wonder. Let let's say we wanted to be the first. Let's say we're that alien civilization, and let's say we find an Earth. You know, like there's almost certainly somebody evolving over civilization. We have a few. Uh, we have about a hundred thousand years to spare to send a signal. Um, I mean, obviously the first thing you want to say is hello, hello, other world. Um, but after that, what, what do you think the moral responsibility is to begin a highly asymmetric download of information to an emerging civilization like ours? I, I think that, I think that's the moral thing to do when done right. But you, I think we'd agree. But, but you don't begin with atomic bombs. (laughs) No, uh, you know, let let them get that out of their system. Um, the, <laughs> the problem is, is that we're individualists, right? We 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 take the individualist point of view. We want any individual within a given society to have control over their destiny. Some people look at things at the culture level and say, yes, but you're 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 erasing this culture, and the value should be letting the culture find its sort of way. You know, it's kind of like the Dawkins versus Gould, you know, the gene versus the animal, and then you get in kind of the versus the culture sort of thing. Like I I look at I, I think those dudes who are, you know, and the, the, was it the, uh, the islands in the Samson islands, whatever in the middle in Indonesian ocean and whatever, there's people out there and these sort of like living in huts and stuff. Like, 
I oh, think uh, totally... sorry. I, I, now I'm st- is there islands in the stream? That is what we are. <laughs> no, <laughs> not islands in the stream, oh, okay. Brian. Uh, but but uh, so, sorry, are you talking about the cargo cults? Uh, or no, 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 no. Uh, there's we still have like kind of basically uncontacted tribes. You know, people who are you know these these small uh, the uh, getting the region the Andalusian Andy. Uh, uh, let me pull up the name just so I can. Uh, just, well, yeah. While you're doing that, uh, we're going to sing I, "Islands in the Stream." No, no, Islands I, in the Stream. <laughs> that is what we are. <laughs> uh, no, uh, I do know that okay. uh, uh, on one of the on on the tour we took uh, of Hawaii, they talked about how there is one island where they're you know it's dwindling smaller and smaller and uh like they're like no we're gonna preserve this culture we're gonna preserve this culture and then teenagers come and they're like yeah i hear about these things called cell phones and yeah. and facebook rule <laughs> so i'm gonna Whoa. go bye <laughs> and, and not and i don't want to pick on any kind of particular culture because things are very very common but you know, we go far enough back into our family trees and we find people who are living in these isolated little villages and stuff and everybody it's related to everybody, and that ends up having its own complications. And too, is you get you get a lack of genetic diversity. And there are some people like, yeah, but you know. So I was speaking to the people who were in the uh, the Sintalese people in the Andaman Island in the Bay of Bengal. Um, they don't like they reject contact. Blah blah blah. I'm like, well, yeah, the people running it kind of reject contact. Yeah. The same as some of these like Jack Mormon groups that like you know the, all the elders control the women <laughs> yeah. in the town reject contact. Uh, uh, I'll have you know, both Elder Thomas and Father Brother Man and their twelve wives, Father Brother Man, <laughs> have rejected yeah. all contact. So I'm sure it's fine. <laughs> yeah. So that's my thing. Is like people are like, oh no, they don't. I'm like, did you? Did you do a survey? Did did we do a survey where we asked, like, well, that's not their way. Like, okay, so you're already agreeing that that the males get to control that society and the destiny of every female and every child there. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, that's your Western way of looking at things. Like, no, we 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 agreed that's bad here. You know. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, it is it is it is a question of of how. I mean, I think we've 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 done our fair share of like clowning of the the, the the Star Trek Prime Directive and stuff like that. But there is there is this question of of exactly like how much do you want to like uh, on on what is the most respectful way to approach another culture one one that you fundamentally have differences on? Like, at, at what point does morality? kick in if you believe that there are like fundamental underpinnings that, that you don't think are right. Uh, Andrew Maine, every so often I share an idea with you that I really think in the bottom of my heart is kind of a clever idea for a science fiction book. And I'm always hoping you'll steal them and write them up. And you always tell me I should write that book, but I think I just had one. Um, I'm trying Father to brother <laughs> <laughs> and the islands in the stream. Father, brother, man, <laughs> father, no. brother, man, that is who he is with his no. 12 wives and his 50 kids. So let's say you are a alien race in a constraint free economy and hundreds of thousands of years are nothing to your civilization or the, your robotic children. Or let's say, let's say your civilization died, but 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 your your robot uh, uh, creations have a directive, which is to share your story. Um, just randomly, I tripped up, uh, across in my mind a couple of articles I read in the last week 
about, you know, whether Beetlejuice is or is not close to a supernova or whatever. And it occurred to me that if what you want to do is share information, you wouldn't just target lasers from your planet, uh, beaming it to likely candidates. Um, uh, we've talked about a Dyson sphere before, which is when you perfectly harvest all of the energy around a star. Uh, and in fact, one of our favorite books, um, uh, oh, uh, the one before Judas and Unchained. Pandora Star. Pandora, Pandora Star, Star, right. Uh, uh, basically, the opening scene of that book is somebody's looking at a star and then it just winks out and the whole planet freaks out because they put together Somebody just made a Dyson sphere, which means we're not alone in the universe, which means, you know, at any point this, you know, advanced civilization yeah. could destroy us and all that stuff. So what I wonder if in the spirit of a Dyson sphere, um, if you, if 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 you had unlimited resources, it would seem like if what you want to do is share information, imagine a record groove, but imagine an, a series of satellites placed around, say, Betelgeuse or, or some other planet that is poised, or sorry, uh, some other star that is poised to go supernova, you can know for a fact that any civilization around is going to watch for, for that thing to explode. And when it does explode, everybody's going to definitely watch. And I wonder if a series of satellites, uh, based on what their chemical composition, you couldn't set up a binary on-off, on-off in Sirius. Uh, so, so, I, you know, so as it goes out and explodes, it's essentially like a, a, a record groove transmitting everywhere with the power of a supernova. And those who are bright enough to tune in or record it will be able to decode the entire message from beginning to end as if it's an <laughs> intergalactic press release. You burn it into their retinas. Well, like like Beetlejuice, when it does go supernova, it's at a safe distance. We're gonna watch uh, uh, Beetlejuice when it goes supernova. It'll be bright enough to see during the daytime. Oh wow! It'll be um, as bright as as about a half moon uh, at night. Uh, uh, we're gonna we're gonna have uh, like like it will be the event of 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 you know our quadrant or whatever. Yeah. Um, I is it. it, it does your Andrew main brain think there's anything to that either as a science fiction idea yeah, or in reality? I mean, there's, that's one of the things that's been proposed in the search study is the idea is like, could, are there ways to use large events, like large events, like, uh, um, magnetars and stuff and putting things in orbit or trying to do stuff to manipulate these things. So you could kind of like create something. And the case of that, like to really, I mean, supernova is big. So, you would the level of engineering to probably and I could be guessing the level of you know engineering to be able to do something to sort of send us a signal, you could kind of just send it. But if you have that though, but you take on that theme though, like you it, could it, be it, doing it would have to be hundreds of millions or billions of satellites strategically placed with different markers that would interact as they got blasted yeah. away. There might be, but there, there might be other, if you have that, there might be related ways you could do stuff. Cause like, if you started moving planets around, you know, I mean, you could, you could also like, uh, Polaris I love as a star. Cause Polaris is like literally like straight up, yeah. straight up. It, it, the fact that you go like, which way is North? I don't know. Hey, look, there's a star up there. I'm <laughs> like, if you want to go look for something like, you know, that would be like, it's your clue dummies. We, we put a star directly <laughs> over your North pole. Mm -hmm. Like that's the clue, but the result is patreon.com slash weird things where you can support this very show. Thank you to everybody who's already done it. Head it on over there to patreon.com slash weird things. You get your custom RSS feed. Not only do you get weird things, but you also get after things 
our show where we talk about creativity and entrepreneurship and how to make your way in the digital world faster than anybody else. It's so simple. Patreon.com slash weird thing. All right, now you got me thinking. Like now, I'm thinking like if we're doing millions, uh, or hundreds of millions, billions of satellites or whatever, then it's like you make them out of different um, uh, 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 chemical or different different elements. You know, like basically copper flashes green when it gets burnt up or whatever. You line them all up in this just amazingly long line, and you throw them at a star that you know will be interesting to a lot of people, and then somebody at some point starts looking. That's so crazy. I- I think the thing that you just got the thing to keep in mind is that the amount that you would need to put there to make to stand out from the noise of all the stuff in the star, but it's not. But if you're working on a really long time frame, it might be like, ah, let's let's move this nebula there, whatever. Like I, yeah, I guess I'm thinking I'm I'm being very very generous in terms of like this is a dying civilization that spends their last thousand generations building robots that are intelligent enough to carry out the directive of tell our story. I'd yeah, say if you had that kind of resource, there might be more efficient ways to You might be able it. to save yeah. your civilization. Oh yeah, no, that's a good point. Like <laughs> you might be able to go away to another place. It's that Sam Kinison bit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like this is sand. Yeah. You know, it's gonna be in a thousand years. <laughs> It's like, uh, oh, I like I, we're only we're directing our entire economy to the robots that tell our story. But what about food, Father Brother Man? We won't need food. We'll have our story told. Ask your seventh mother to cook third breakfast. Uh, yeah, to cook shoe leather. Are you, you know, the thing that you get into the idea of like, you know what we need is... Let's imprint our story on them in their own DNA in a little thing. And we've developed a robot called a virus. Yeah. And we'll send this to Earth. Will it break down? Ah, it'll take a few million years. Yeah, they'll you know? figure it out. That way, those sauropods walking around will know our story. <laughs> yeah, actually, uh, at that point, I would imagine you you get a little bit desperate. You're like, uh, let's just make them into us. <laughs> just see, just... Yeah. just Hit hit the uh, uh, dandelion button. <laughs> Send it everywhere. Yeah. Well, and, and you know another place to put like a big secret or whatever is is like just a few miles underground on Earth. Well, like, oh oh, to be discovered at at some uh, faraway time or yeah, like we still don't have really good tech for digging very deep. Oh man, so. if only somebody was working on on uh, drilling holes in the ground. <laughs> yeah, tunnels. Yeah. So I just sent a link to just touch us back before. This is the uh, Aztec Tower of Skulls. They discovered a, 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 a new section of this 15th century structure. So. Uh, oh, good God. It wow. It was, was known as the Huey Tezampa Pantinli. Yeah, maybe they all, now, they're they all I, old people who, well, nope, they all have teeth. Um, hmm. Well, you know, uh, uh, we, Ashley and I, when we were in Rome, went to go see the Capuchin Crypts, uh, which was a, a, a monastic sect that built gigantic, uh, very reverential, whenever one of their order died, they would take every bone out of their body and build these, like, beautiful but haunting and macabre uh, 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 you know, religious 
uh, uh, iconography. It, it, it was uh, basically uh, Body Worlds before Body Worlds. Basically, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, Corey, if we can find uh, uh, some pictures of it, the, the Capuchin crypts in, in Rome. Uh, but these all died violently. <laughs> yeah. So that was not the same as the Capuchin crypts. Like there are there are elements of of uh, people doing this in in a reverential way to honor the dead. I don't think that uh, I agree with you, Brian, that if they all had, if they all had uh, a fairly healthy teeth that are preserved, then yeah, you could probably think that those heads were probably severed without their permission. Well, oh, wow. some people are like, well, maybe there were their warriors that were like, it's, it's like if we went to Arlington cemetery yeah. and you started digging up bodies like, Oh, they shot only, but like, eh, there's, there's, there, there were other, it wasn't just Europeans documenting this. Yeah. Yeah. So, th so these are the Capucha Crips that we're looking at now on the video feed. Uh, uh, this was done before Rome had laws about uh, uh, fiddling around with human remains. And this is grandfathered in. But if there is, if at any moment a piece of bone hits the ground from its original securing, they have to bury it. Like uh, it cannot wow. go back yeah. up to to be well, because part because of it. now you, it's the trolley problem where it's like it's like whoa 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 that looks like you're actively gonna kill two people to save five. Uh, we're just gonna. I mean, it's already there. We it's, can't. We it's can't there, take it down. But now, as soon as a bone hits the ground, it's now illegal, and they need to bury it respectfully. Uh, they they, they yeah. cannot. They cannot re, re replace it there. It's yeah. Uh, you know, and the subject of people go like, well, are we being too harsh on this culture? It's like, well, we can go to a place called Auschwitz and we can see what one group does to another group. Yeah. And then we can go, you know, look at look at things we literally did to indigenous people out of, you know, the idea of conquest. But, uh, and, re yeah. Real quick shout out. Uh, we've talked about it. Uh, I think it's been the uh, two years uh, maximum or minimum before we can mention better, better angels of our nature again uh, by Steven Pinker, mm -hmm. where it's like that opening chapter, uh, by the way, if you're unfamiliar with the book, it's basically about how we are the most peaceful we've ever been uh, in terms of violent deaths per capita in, in all of human history, even including 20th century and so on. But, but to make a point uh, uh, at a very gut level, you spend the entire first chapter finding out what people in the Middle Ages did for fun. Uh, you get to learn what breaking on the wheel is and, and where uh, uh, ways to skin a cat comes from. And yeah. <laughs> like, like, oh my gosh. Man. It, it turns out uh, inventing cable, great idea. Like inventing radio, great idea. Like, because when you don't have Fibber McGee and Molly, you get into some weird places real fast. Oh boy. So, another uh, thing I want to bring up is a. So, this is Andrew kind of sighing because it's like, like everybody's sort of nuts on this. There are some researchers that have put forth, you know, when we've been looking at these images stuff on Mars, like the Martian blueberries, which are, uh, we think it's like hematite. We think it's, a, you know, like a metallic material. And there's a research paper that got published by a group of people that some of the people involved have very uh, fanciful theories on other stuff. Okay. And some people, and for some people, that's a reason to just say like, ah, this again from these people. It's like, well... 
you know, let me tell you about an alchemist who is into astrology, who also happened to be named Sir Isaac Newton. Yeah. We love to watch counterfeiters get hanged. That's another fun <laughs> fact about that oh, weirdo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really? Yeah, was. like that's how he spent Sunday afternoons. He was like, I hate counterfeiters. Oh, they're hanging one. Mm. <laughs> he was, by all accounts, a jerk. He yeah. was a jerk. <laughs> a brilliant, but a jerk. Uh, they're not where's that biopic (laughs) (laughs) there's a total unrepentant dick weirdo (laughs) like oh by the way he he was also uh am i remembering this right andrew i think he was obsessed with his mother and uh uh man he was very had a lot going on yeah uh so this paper got put out about like uh, you know these. It's a bunch of different. I'm gonna see if I can find the title of the paper because I got a, great photos. It looks you're like oh wow this is very interesting, um, and it's where did I put my notes here? Uh, the paper is fungi in Mars evidence of growth and behavior from sequential images. Okay, and a uh, number of researchers from different institutions worked on this paper. And there's a bunch of let me see if I can send this to Corey. So if he wants to pull up the images, because better than me trying to explain it. And then we need to get full context. But the thing I want is the frustrating thing is that like there's an article on CNET, which says, no, NASA photos are not evidence of fungus growing on Mars. Sorry. I'm like, okay, cool. Three quarters of this is debunking, is criticizing the person and the people who did this and say not this again kind of thing. And then we get one, uh, we basically get four paragraphs of people saying, nope, this isn't what this is. And, and it's like, all right, <clears throat> let's. Let's, well, I I think those are just uh, uh there needs to be a reckoning in terms of science journalism and and there's probably it's a spin-off of just a larger journalism conversation that we kind of need to have uh but specifically I feel like through this last year when we've had such piss poor uh a science communication at a time where science communication was very important and very vital and very tricky and complicated to get right uh, you know, just even reading that headline immediately makes me flash back to the article uh, that I believe almost exactly had. No, you didn't get coronavirus in the fall of 2019 because that was something that was kind of going around after it uh, uh, picked up because a lot of people, including my wife, got like really, really, really mm-hmm. bad respiratory focused flus. Uh, and uh, uh, as it turns out, yes. Yes, many people did. Indeed, that yeah. is is exactly what happened. But we rushed mm. to kind of like poo-poo it, and and not to say that their reasoning at the time was not sound. And criticisms that you made of the person that was bringing it up were not something to be heard. But it's just that declarative idea that is like just uh, I think out and out damaging. Uh, well, as uh, hey uh, dummy, in, in, yeah. hey dummy, you're dumb to believe this. Well, and in fact, like. It was it was last night on the drive back uh, from uh, my uh, the grandparents' place. Uh, you know, my my daughter's seventeen; she's getting ready to go to college and stuff. And I forget what the uh, how we got there, but there's a question about like, um, oh, uh, I think at some point peop- uh, somebody was asking how effective masks are or whatever. Yeah, and it's like uh, Bonnie was just sharing that that was a topic that was being discussed uh, at at the get together, and uh, uh, my daughter. Uh, like, like, cut her off, saying, uh, "Masks are super important. They're great, and and anyone who thinks otherwise is dumb, and I hate dumb people, and whatever." And then, and and I reminded her that, well, sweetheart, the Centers for Disease Control, um, just one year and two months ago today, 
was pleading for people to not use masks, yeah. stating unequivocally that it would not help and they would they they were too important. They save them for the doctors. You really don't need a mask. And it's like so so. Uh, that's not to say whether it's right or whether it's wrong, but it is to say that when somebody is wrong, you should be kind because I have been and plan to be wrong a lot in my life and, and or, or confused and wrong as, is I think what I said. Um, and so, uh, but, but, but that moment with my 17 year old daughter, uh, tracks a hundred percent with what you're with the way science is being I, reported I, I nowadays. Just, yeah. I just think, uh, uh, that level of stridency, I would expect oh. from a seventeen-year-old so, girl, but not from, but, from but journalists. Maybe we should maybe we should have a little bit more editorial control <laughs> when it comes to how we're communicating our scientific messages. Last section of this article is bad science. One of the bigger problems in publishing about Joseph's claim is allowing bad science to make its way to the public. And then they quote they quote you know some rando on Twitter just found out there's life on Mars via effing Utilad. Um, and then it's like this pandemic has shown us misinformation can be harmful, eroding confidence in science and researchers and institutes. Yeah, researchers and institutes uh, lying to us and making things up because of our pet's interest really does a lot of erosion, too, you think? And so um, I'm not saying I like this whole article, like it's probably all BS. Like I'm it's sketchy as, as heck a lot of stuff there, but I think that's not the way you debunk a thing. I agree. I think that there's an unnecessarily adversarial tone. And and if I if we really wanted to Them clicks get, though. Yeah, I mean that's the thing, is that if we really wanted to get into the the uh, uh journalistic world of why that happened and where that evolved from. A lot of it was from the era of kind of the aughts blogs where uh, you had, even in a pre-social media world, big garish headlines that would never run in a newspaper. And now not only are the newspapers further eroded, but the blogs are also going belly up. And yet that, for whatever reason, is the only thing that remains, despite the fact that it's like, you know, we're also now seeing a rise in more substantive places like like Substack and stuff like that where people are are craving very like uh, a more straight ahead uh content that doesn't necessarily screech or have uh, the same level of ideology uh, not to take us too far of course but i think i heard uh, our friend andrew heaton saying that um and and maybe he was quoting someone else maybe he was uh, uh it's his thought but uh, uh it's not that that we're more divided than ever it's that we're better sorted than ever. And so as a result, we only want to hear declarative titles. Like yeah. that, that's part of the reason uh, journalistic institutions like the New York Times or whatever have figured out like, oh, wait, you know, we can, um, uh, uh, everybody used to sell ads, but then, but then that stopped working. And so rather than talk to everyone, it became easier to just put up a paywall and say, hey man, on the inside, all the things you already believe, it's a magical wonderland. We're gonna tell you you're right about everything with yeah. big fat declarations across the board. Yeah, and it's, I guess my frustration kind of comes through is, is that uh, if you can, I don't know, Corey, if you can pull up, there's, a, there's image in there, cool. They're like compelling where you see you know, like, oh, there's like, there's, there's, there's scattered here and there's more of these little nodules here. And then, and then, you know, the people married in the paper can make the claim like, oh, these things are growing. And it could be, you know, could be any number of things. It could be things like, this is the image in particular. We're looking at like, oh, there's more there. And 
it's cool. I would love to know what's going on here. Like, I'm it, not like, oh, it's life. But the fact that we get an articles, oh, they're just BS and nobody's going through the images and telling us what's going on. Well, and, and you know, you know what it reminds me of is, uh, I don't know if there's any version of it that still exists, but there used to be a magazine called the 40 and Times that mm, was loved it. nothing but just collecting weird stuff. And, and um, depending on how you squinted, they were either actively promoting pseudoscience or they were just collecting weird stuff. Like, you know, they happen to snap an image of... Uh, of, of, of a smoke plume and it looks like the devil's face is in it or whatever, yeah. you know, <laughs> it, was- uh, it, it was great. And, and, and I wouldn't be surprised if going, you know, if eventually some AI robot is going to have the patience to go through all of that and say, Hey, that thing that you just discovered last week, here's the 40 and times calling it right in, in 1922 or whatever. Well, we had, you know, and that's a, you know, you know, well, let's make it very clear. 40 times is BS, but it was fun BS to read. But remember, you know, uh, Thomas Jefferson on the idea of meteors, you know, I says, I, I, I'd sooner believe that, you know, like these, some Yankees or whatever, we're making this story up than things are falling from the sky. Cause it was just this <laughs> idea of that this could happen. And I don't, and here it's not like re, scientists are putting stuff on Mars because we're looking for life. And this isn't yeah. like, Oh, they're trying to keep it a secret. That's not the problem here. Cause it's, they're not, it's, it's the problem here is this people who think they're scientific, you know, science editors and science writers who think they're, promulgating science who are not there there it's there nah this is bs it's like no that's not science science is like that eh, doesn't evidence doesn't support this we show these photos to three people hear their opinions on this not like man let me lecture you you know because if you dummies who didn't listen it's like Ugh. science should just be like a and I don't, I don't want to get into like the actual quirks of the character, but something along the lines of like data from Star Trek that like has no judgment. It is just there to talk forever yeah. about a thing. <laughs> like it's just like like well, while highly unlikely, uh, uh, what, what we might imagine is this is possible, and and this is blah blah blah. Like that's the point. The point of science is that it should just be a constant. There should you should never be able to stump science. It will always be looking. Uh, you know what? Uh, <laughs> I would love a filter for your uh, the browser of your choice that uh, takes every science headline and just adds the words we think at the beginning, and then a comma, and then says, "But we'll see." <laughs> Like, yeah. like then it's oh, like we think you're wrong about having gotten COVID in 2019, yeah. but, but we'll, we'll see. see. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that's yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. and I guess part treating of this, like science, like I'm oh, sorry. No, it, it's just it's just part of this again gets into a, a journalism conversation of like, well, how much, how important is a headline? How important is a lead? How important are both of those things compared to the rest of the article? How how substantive? Uh, uh, does it need to be like there was a, a a New York Times article not to get back to COVID, but uh, was about uh, uh, herd immunity and whether or not we we're going to hit herd immunity and or whether and, it's possible or yeah stuff like that. And it's like the article wasn't bad. The headline was, in my opinion, unnecessarily scaremongery and uh, uh, I think actively making an average reader dumber if you do not follow you know, a lot of the, the, the COVID-19 stuff. Uh, but it's like, what is that worth? Is it a good article? Because if you read it, like there is a lot of good information in there. There is a lot of good advancing the football on what people estimate a herd immunity could be, whether or not it actually matters, uh, uh, you know, uh, what the government's response to is, or is it 
damned out of the box because the headline sucks. Well, and and is isn't it a thing? Uh, 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 enlighten me on this. I I had the impression that part of working at a uh, any kind of publication was that you got to write the article, but it was your editor that got to pick the title. And then nowadays they change the title after the fact, constantly AB testing to see what's working. Yeah. No, I mean, in, in general, the workflow is you are assigned an article by your assignment editor. If you don't bring it in and that's rarer, uh, you write the article and then that's your end as a writer. You then hand it, you work with your uh, section editor then it goes off to the copy desk. And at that point, unless you get a call back on like, you know, from somebody higher up to be like, hey, we need to flesh this out or we need another source there or we need to know where you're coming from, then you're done. And then from that point, it is your editor that puts the headline on uh, and, and, and whatever designers because there is, it's less of a problem now in an internet age, but certainly in, in the world of newspapers, you know, back when I, I took the telegraph to work, uh, uh, you know, there, there was, you know, X amount of, of account. And that was, you know, something that might shift late into the night as the, as the paper was laid out and had to be, you know, put in there. So there was a practical reason to do it beyond just saying like, I'm the evil editor. I do what I want. I don't care about your article. Uh, but now I think that there's less of an excuse for that because, we should be getting better headlines. We should be like there should be an onus put on that more, in my opinion. Well, they're they're but as Brian pointed, they're optimizing them for clicks, though. That's what's happened. Yeah. Is that is that is that it's that wall? What used to be probably a poorly framed wall, but was like the Chinese wall between you know what was you know the the, the news gathering and you know side and editorial side and advertising. Yeah, that is gone. That is really gone, and not in ways that are necessarily obvious even to the people working there, but. You know, you you go from working for New York Times writing about science policy to working for Pfizer to helping them, you know, pivot how they're going to do their next drug release. Then you go back to working for some news organization and you see this in reportage now. And part of the problem, too, is reporters, you know, we treat science like it's an institution, like it's. Yeah. Well, I need to know what's going on with the military. Call the Pentagon. I need to know what's going on with this this bill that's being passed. Well, call our contact at the House of Representatives. Cool. I need to know what's going on with these photos. Call this call science at the university the contact you have. Yeah. Well, I spoke to science and science told me this. And it's like there was there was science. a there was an exceptionally stupid article that uh, uh, was was political in nature, but it was about a a certain I'm not going to name him, but a certain ex president and whether or not. Uh, uh, this 45th president of the United States, I'm not going to name him, uh, was going to face legal. Uh, no, it was like, like what his legal strategy would be. And literally the entire sourcing of the article was calling law professors. And it was like legal experts suggest that should this 45th president of the United States face charges, he which, might, this is what he would do. And it's like, what fan fiction? Like, and, and that, and that gets to our kind of cult of experts where where we we're like oh like uh we need to know science is is herd immunity real let's call science 1-800-SCIENCE and it, and, it dials, and it dials up Johns Hopkins and somebody picks up the phone and says science here is herd immunity real indeed it is click professor science of I, Johns Hopkins University says I, and I'm going to tell you a little thing that I've learned in in my years 
the more gifted and better communicator somebody is, it means the more time they spent communicating and perhaps the less time they spent in the laboratory. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, there, so, there so are exceptions. Uh, one of the things before we move on from, from titles versus articles or whatever, uh, and this is the marketer in me, uh, coming out where, um, you know, we, when we send out an email blast for a new product or whatever, we make sure to pick a subject line that we think will get opened because, uh, MailChimp likes it when people, when, you know, that's how it knows what's spam and, and what's yeah. content or whatever. Uh, but there, there are often times where the click rate to open an email is very, very poor, but then we'll sell a whole lot of them. And, and it took me a while to figure out like, Oh, uh, if, if, if they know they want it, uh, then why would they click on the email? They'll just like, Oh, they've got hats now I'll buy a hat. And so, and so likewise, these clickbaity titles are really problematic because uh, the content may be nuanced and accurate and well-researched or whatever, but I am astonished at how much of my view of the world I get just by opening up Google News and uh, whether or not I click on one dang thing, I see all the trending stories and now my my brain is now filled with with essentially uh, clickbaity tweets from news organizations that that almost certainly are skewing my perception of what's happening in the world. And that's and that's that's where, where I got upset about that New York Times article was not because I even read it or I even saw the headline. It was because the headline was generating such sturm and drong on Twitter because it was reinforcing this narrative that like we're all doomed and everything's bad and things are terrible when it's like, in reality, America is doing among the best in the world on the vaccines. Yes, we could continue to do better. Yes, we could continue to educate uh, uh, I don't think that doctors should be on Jimmy Kimmel yelling at people, but, uh, uh, you know, to each their own in terms of medical communication. Uh, still, like, we are, this is good news. We are doing good. And yet, to read that headline and then to read, it, it reinforces, I think, actively negative parts of our society that are just, like, pessimistic on a level that I think hurts us. I think it hurts our safety. I think it is, it is, that is a life and death thing. There is, there is a book on marketing to be written about how headline and subject messages are the content. And like when I write, yeah. when I send out email now, I'm like, what do I want them to know? New book, title of new book available now. That's, that's what I want them to read. Even if they never click, like they can't unknow that. They've now read yeah. your tweet and, and you got them. Also, uh, uh, tip of the hat to the chat room. I, I missed who it was, but but I almost burst out laughing because we're talking about journalism and headlines and editors. And somebody in the chat says, I thought editors just wanted more pictures of Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> it's still true that it's day I mean, look, that's, uh, like uh, back in the day, the further, you but know. I mean, just give me more pictures the of fur- Spider-Man. The, the further we stray from know. God's light. <laughs> Everything SMH. you need to know, you could learn from Daily Bugle operations. Oh, you know, yeah. what does Jonas Jan, Jonah want? What's the the harried life of a reporter? And trying, I need photos of this. I need it doesn't bleed, it won't lead. You know, all of this, it's all there. <laughs> Whereas, like that, that was a problem. The DC Universe and like Clark Kent, like he sounded like he was a horrible reporter. Yeah. Uh, so, oh, and, and, and actually, having just rewatched the Donner uh, Supermans, um, like. I don't know why they made it a bit, but uh, but Lois Lane, every scene she's in, she's like, are there two T's in little or one? <laughs> <laughs> and it's like that. <laughs> like, that's because she's, 
her skill was she was a great reporter because she went out there and got the news. She couldn't spell worth anything. <laughs> Clark yeah. was Clark would be perfectly margined, all this sort of stuff. But you also think like he could have been the greatest reporter in the world, but he just wouldn't use his powers. You yeah. know, like because he's got super hearing and all this sort of stuff. Oh, what he's if what crap. if he took his like what if he goes to a therapist and the therapist is like, you need to take your day job a little more seriously. And so he just goes around x-ray visioning and he's just like secret government installation yeah. at these coordinates. He could have could have exposed everybody. Man, which, he could have uh, gotten he could have gotten all the pictures of Spider-Man. <laughs> yeah. Uh one last quick story. I want you to imagine that you're a Japanese coastal town. You're mm -hmm. suffering some economic hardship before COVID and now with COVID. Mm -hmm. We've given you about the equivalent of $250,000 in funding. What do you do? I actually know this story. So, Brian, this is all on you. Hold on. Give, give, give me this, uh, the, the setup again. You're, you're a little town in Japan, a yep. little coastal town in Japan. Yep. You've been having some you know, economic struggles, and COVID's made it worse. Yep. And the government says, here is $250,000. To help your town. I want to believe it's you you build uh the top half of a Gojira um looking like it's coming out of the ocean as a monument <laughs> to make it look like it's approaching your town. So you would build a statue. Yes. A bizarre statue. A bizarre statue, but yeah, or a kraken or of something. the with your COVID relief money. Um I mean, that's what I would do, but that's why I ain't mayor of, <laughs> of a town in Japan. Uh, oh, hold on. Are uh, Mr. Brian, sir, how would you like to be mayor of our town? <laughs> no way! <laughs> when you play for comedy and you get it right. Oh, my God. <laughs> what is it? This is, uh, let me put it this way. People are like, oh, look at how silly this is. Go through our latest, uh, our latest federal budget, our, our latest, you know, relief package. Go look through there and see some of the the darlings there that we will never see the light of that go to benefit people who are you know friendly with the people who wrote the bill and then tell me this is dumb. Oh, that's amazing. So uh, uh, I don't know if uh, uh, the the way that I heard the story was that it was a portion of their of, of their yeah, money. they got like eight hundred million won. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They they they, yeah. they spent the vast majority on it on stuff like that. But one of the things that really really got hit was tourism, and so they decided to put in a gigantic squid statue. Uh, that is uh, uh, now hopefully for them going to bring in more tourists. And I'll tell you what, I was like kind of uh, ready to make fun of it. But then I'm like, you know, whenever my friends go anywhere, the first thing they go to is the thing they can take an Instagram photo in front of. And yep, you could yep. probably do worse than just setting up gigantic Instagram bait in, in your town, in your tourist town. We're, we're literally funding museums. Like we're giving COVID relief money to museums and stuff like this, which debatable whether you're not saying a pro or con against it. Sure. To then go, oh, well, this giant squid. <laughs> well, well, and, and, and it is a fact, um, uh, and again, not to place a value judgment, but it is definitely a fact that very, 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 two more varies little of, of the trillions of dollars of COVID relief is going to anything directly related to COVID. The, the, the way these things move fast is they were already written and prepared not for COVID. And yeah. then they just say like, well, now uh, uh, let's shrug and say 
economic stimulus, am I right? And then and then they go. Uh, and and I'm sure some of it is good. Some of the, some of the you know a lot of it is wasteful. I'm sure. Um, but but uh, some of it might even be COVID related. But uh, but we. I don't think this is a, a Japanese-only weirdo phenomenon no, because no, we're no, we're no, much no, bigger no, weirdos. No, 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 no. I oh, think yeah. they will see a return on this. Uh, I, I do. I, I think they'll make more than seven three point three million dollars. It's not a bad bet. Well, yeah, no, no, no. That that was their whole COVID thing. This was this was two hundred twenty-eight thousand that they spent on on the big old squid. What? I, well, that's definitely going to get a return on investment. That was actually maybe the best investment they made. Brian's Brian needs he's like wait hold, yeah. is, that, is that the going rate can we uh, get a big old squid here uh, hold yeah, on hold on it's me mayor of the small Japanese town let me call my cousin elder brother man <laughs> and get a little bit of advice <laughs> yeah that that 238,000 like that's like one third of one pay toilet in Manhattan now or exactly. public toilet in Manhattan like yeah. that's like they got a good deal these uh, people got a good deal. Dude, I'll tell you what. At, uh, like at those numbers, I'm wondering what the HOA says about the squid statues. The town did it. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. No, no, no. Brian's talking about the Texas HOA. So he can put <laughs> I mean, one at my house. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. It's indigenous. I found it here. You can't move <laughs> it. <laughs> uh, gentlemen, picks? Uh, yeah, dude. I saw the new Lord and Miller, newish Lord and Miller on Netflix. Uh, the Mitchells versus the Machines. Chef's kiss, man. So good from beginning to end. Pacing's amazing. Uh, over the top, tar- uh, st- over the top storytelling. Uh, I think it, it, it's got strong, cloudy with the chance of meatball vibes. Um, it, if, if these are the guys that did uh, uh, Spider Man into, into the, the Spider Verse, it's it's just great. It's great. It's great. Um, cool. I will keep the train rolling uh, with Lord and Miller uh, just to remind people that the greatest cartoon that ever created was Clone High. Uh, defunct because of their portrayal of Gandhi uh, as a... Uh, a party <laughs> as, bro? As, as a wacky party bro, uh, but uh, a brilliant but canceled. I think it's available now on, on iTunes, but if, if, if you haven't watched it, then... I, uh, I just went up and bought it on uh, on Amazon. Yeah. And it, yeah. it was worth it. It's it, I mean, especially now that Lord Miller has not only carved out such a great uh uh legacy in in all media, but but cartoons specifically. That was their first cartoon and it uh it it, it holds up. Yeah. Wish they could do something of Star Wars. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> Sorry, too soon. Release, God, release, release the Lord of Miller cut. Release the Lord of Miller cut. <laughs> okay. Oh my God. Would that be uh, amazing? I will sign up for any streaming service. That's that, the problem. That brings the problem back. is because that was a thing that was going around after the Snyder cut hit. Yep. Uh, but there would need to be a acknowledgement of. There would need to be a regime change in in who's making the decision oh, yeah. before any they even had any level of sense of humor about any bit of that um yeah but it certainly wouldn't be because lord miller haven't immediately i mean like that doesn't seem to have hurt their career like at all like because they they hit with spider verse I mean, right quite, after that it really was it's like uh your loss world <laughs> like yeah. I mean, wouldn't it be wouldn't it be cool if you had a movie made by us I mean, what if Star Wars was really fun? Just really, really fun. <laughs> Just throwing that out there. <laughs> I, have a, I have a pick, and I mentioned before that I've been working my way through the Hobbit movies, um, and there's stuff to like in there. There's stuff not. We talked about, you know, the, the, it's the stretched out, and it, <sighs> you, know, you watch the behind the scenes, 
Peter Jackson was given this very, very impossible sort of task because it just the, the negotiations to get the rights took forever and Guillermo del Toro had to back out. And then Peter Jackson gets this like, hey, you've got to go make this movie in five months. And then they're all like thankful that Peter Jackson got ill for a month and couldn't shoot because they're all like all the group of like, oh, we were pressed for time. And thankfully, Peter got sick. So we had, you know, a month, an extra month to get stuff ready. Jesus. Uh, it was just they're all like, oh, it's bad. But, you know, we needed that month, you know, <laughs> like, well, thanks, Peter. So anyhow, they uh, they go into some the technical stuff behind there is fascinating. And and they made choices like there are choices made that I don't know. Like they talk about how like Azrog, like the big orc villain throughout the thing they had. They went through so many different concepts for it. They shot with an actor in a specific makeup design and all this. And after that, six weeks before the movie is to be delivered, Peter Jackson's like, nah, I don't like it. Let's go redo it. And they completely created a new CGI face and new actor to go do this performance for it, which I think might be a little bit too Kubrickian of like, because the other design I saw looked amazing. And I think the, the final one looked like a mouse. Yeah. But um, they show some technical stuff there. And one of the things they showed was in trying to do the hobbit they wanted to do in 3d not post-process 3d but actually the two you know two cameras you know ocular distance apart and when you're trying to shoot scenes with gandalf and the dwarves traditionally the, the way they did it in lord of the rings they did force perspective you know they put ian mckellen closer they put you know you know frodo further back and then the camera would line up and it looked like you know just gandalf was bigger when you're doing 3d you can't do that because you see the trick you see that yeah. this actor is just standing closer so they show this thing, one of the first things they shot, which was at Bag End, and the way they did it was they built, they had their Bag End set so the dwarves and sort of Bilbo could walk around in. Then they had a green screen version of that set, like basically doors and stuff, but all green, that was 25% larger, okay? Or 25% smaller, basically. So, Got it. you know, Ian McKellen would appear 25% larger. Yeah. So they put Ian McKellen there. They had the dwarves and the other, the real set, and they had two cameras that were synced together. And uh, this documentary is old, so they use the idea, they use the term slaved together. <laughs> so when you move this camera in and this camera, the other camera would move around and they would follow, but it would adjust it by like 25%. Oh, so wow. the Ian McKellen be 25% larger and you do this. And it's an amazing technical achievement, amazing technical achievement to do garbage 3D. That's <laughs> the point. Well, especially at a high frame rate. So, so you, you yeah. very clearly see how garbage it is. Yeah, and guess two things that nobody ever watches watch that again after the theatrical release. Yeah. <laughs> you know, high well, frame rate or 3D. That must have been weird for Peter Jackson because he'd be like, why don't they like that? That That is exactly how they looked on set. Isn't that great? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah that's the problem well, is that's exactly how they look on set. It looked like a Mexican telenovela. Yeah. Um, and then the thing is, is it's amazing, but then there's a scene there. And I, I implore anybody who's interested in the intersection of technology and art to watch where Ian McKellen is in the set by himself sitting at a table on the point of tears because he has nobody to act off of. He's got an earpiece and he can hear them, but he's trying to look around this green space and there's nobody there. And this actor who spent his lifetime, you know, wanting to be about performance and working in the theater. And you put this guy who's, you know, 72 at this point, you put him in this other room, like, okay, great act. Yeah. And it's, it's, he's just emotionally wrought and they had to go talk. Oh, we had to make him feel better and do this, blah, blah, blah. But like, man, there's performance is a real thing. Performance I, I, is a real thing. And I think that that's where, like, when you hear the actors rave about the, 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 the tech that they had for the Mandalorian and, and what they're doing now, like 
it really just gives people that ability to at least have some frame of reference of what world they're in and, and, well, it, and how it, it they're tees them up for success. I mean, yeah, it, yeah, it, it gets the most like, out of out of your instruments after two and a half decades of uh, actors looking at tennis balls and pretending that it's their dead best friend. Uh, uh, you know, now they were able to kind of uh, uh, interact with things on on a more realistic level. Yeah. So it's worth it's totally worth watching for behind the scenes on that. I mean, it's the the best behind the scenes ever was the original Lord of the Rings ones were because you're just that journey of making the movie was just as emotional as the movie itself. Well, and and, and what an extraordinary leap at the time it was. I mean, nothing, yeah. no precedent for for what they were achieving. And also, like from the point of view too, is that I think the team that when they made the Hobbit was they wanted they were connected to it, but it was kind of a business. Well, let, we've got this business. Let's continue the business yeah. and make the business of this where Lord of the Rings was, we love this thing and we want to make the most amazing thing we can. Let's get some people together. And it's obviously a business, but the blood, sweat and tears was about trying well, to tell and, a great and, story. And there had to be, have been a sense of with Lord of the Rings, uh, that was not present in the Hobbit of, of, of let's try to jump up and punch the moon. Let's do something that, that nobody's ever been able to pull off. Yeah. Yeah. Corey. Yes. Mine is Brandon Sanderson. Oh, man. And I told you I was going to get started, didn't I? Know. I? Uh, yes, mm. yes, you did. Uh, Stormlight series uh, from Brandon Sanderson. Uh, some of the best books, uh, in my opinion, ever. I uh, love uh, his Brandon Sanderson, we, uh, previously I read The Mistborn, and, and, yep. and you got my goat. Like, yep. like you're right. It's, it's good stuff. And I hear that this is the, uh, the, the bigger, stronger, older brother. Yes, Yes, uh, it's it's a larger world, um, still magic systems like Brandon Sanderson always does, but just even better storytelling. It's just amazing. I, st I still love Mistborn. They're they're really close together on which one of my favorites would be, but uh, just such a good series. Uh, Andrew, have you read any of those? I I've not. I've met Sanderson, and he's one of these writers that's like. I think 30 years from now, 40 years from now, when we look at like who are sort of the masters of fantasy and genre around this time period, you're going to hear him and George R. R. Martin, maybe a couple others, but Sanderson's just the reviews just consistently knocks it out of the park. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's Mistborn, well, it, 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 which is not the series you're talking about, the one I read, mm -hmm. uh, it, 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 it did a good job of tricking me. Started off feeling like some young adult stuff. And then by the end, you're like, Nope. Holy cow, this is epic. <laughs> yep. yep. Yeah, his worlds always start really small, like a kid on a farm, right? Just a tiniest, Name tiniest Name one world. other story that begins with a kid and on then, a farm. Yeah, right? <laughs> and then it just gets massive. I mean, talking about worlds and gods and everything by the end, it's just crazy. What one uh, would you say to start with? Um. Uh. Well, it depends on if you want a crazy amount of time. Um, so I would say if, you, if you're okay with longer reads, like we're talking 60-hour audiobooks, you know, 50s and 60s, then uh, Stormlight series is where I would start. Um, if you want a uh, slightly shorter, then I think Mistborn. Uh, Mistborn has maybe more fun characters, um, and Stormlight probably has the better story. So if you're more character-driven, maybe uh, maybe I'd start with... Uh, uh, Mistborn. Mistborn, yeah, thank yeah. you. All right, cool. I'm uh, putting some of this. I, I'll see how long it'll take when I get to them. But, um, yeah, I mean, this is like you're looking looking at Final Final Empire, uh, which is the first one of the Mistborn. And this is a book that has uh, 
65 4.8 stars 65,000 ratings yeah dude it's, it's, it's good it's a uh, <laughs> it's real good every, every i mean uh what's funny is i i do the same thing i seek that kind of validation and uh uh luckily i went in blind to mitchell's versus the machines and i was like I think this is one of those that everyone will agree is good. I open up Rotten Tomatoes. It's 98%. It's like, yep, pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I sometimes I'll pick things up and they just don't work for me. And I know I'm the problem. Yeah. <laughs> I know I'm the problem. But I know. Do, 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 do. It's, it's my, my own damn fault. I look to the stream. Gentlemen, it's been weird. <laughs> Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>